G'day, I'm Ollie Laleve and welcome to GRDC In Conversation. This series is a GRDC investment that takes you behind the scenes as we sit down with some of the people shaping our grain industry, uncovering their journeys, learning more about their passions and the projects that are part of their everyday. We're covering Southern Australia's grain growing regions, chatting with researchers, advisors, growers, advocates and just about everyone in between. We're in for a treat today. I'm joined by Yannick Heller. The man lives near Launceston in Tasmania, but he's initially from the Wimmera in Victoria. Yannick left school at the age of 16. He was given the ultimatum by his parents that it was time to either dedicate himself to his studies or go and get a job. Well, Yannick chose the latter and he headed off to Denmark as a teenager to begin working on a family friend's farm there. 12 months later, he returned home to Australia where his friends were still in school and Yannick was mature and ready to head away. Securing a farming job in the Wimmera, he began to learn the ropes of the southern grains industry. His career has since taken him across farms in southern Australia, and today he finds himself working in the farm services sector down in Tassie. Welcome to this GRDC podcast. We're, we're obviously chatting with a bunch of different people involved in the southern grains industry, and you've spent a bit of time across Victoria and now a Tasmanian. Can, can we call you a Tasmanian, or how you identify? Ooh. Look, I think uh, I think my where I am from in, in Victoria, they'd call me a Tasmanian. I've been down here about seven, eight years now. When I go back to Victoria in the summer, I struggle in the sun, so they yeah give me a bit about that. So I think <laughs> I feel like a Tasmanian anyway. I um yeah I think I think Launceston's quite a big town. You know, it gets too busy around school time. So um yeah. And how how's the spring treating you guys down there in terms of? We're one month in. I did see there was a bit of water lying around, but yeah, what's the, what's the season looking like? Shaping up, I would say beautiful. We had quite a dry autumn, um, which, yeah, we struggled for feed and a few things like that. And before the cold came in, so there was a bit of a tough time there, but we've had a really wet, um, you know, sort of August, September. And, um, you know, we're trying to get crops in now, but, you know, everything's jumped away. We really had a quite a mild winter, which helped our spring start really early. I think. Um, and look, I'm talking about the Midlands, I suppose, are on based more than anything. So, um, yeah, look, you can see the grass growing. I just know at home I've had to mow the lawns a couple of times. It's always a good sign. One thing that surprised me, I was down in Tassie recently and like 17 degrees down there is a very different 17 degrees uh, on the mainland. Like it was actually warm enough to jump in the water. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's definitely a bit weird down here. No doubt about that. I don't know. I'm definitely no scientist. People say there's a hole in the ozone layer down here and there's IUV. But uh, when when I came down from the Wimmera Mallee, you know, I was going to wear a singlet and a pair of shorts over harvest and I very quickly realised I'd just get burnt every day. And uh, that wasn't a great idea. So she's long sleeves and hats and sunscreen, believe it or not. So it is a different heat. Quite often the temperature gauge will say, you know, it's 12 or 13 degrees, which is obviously taken in the shade. You know, and as you said, you can be wearing shorts and a T-shirt, you know, out in the sun. So. I guess that's why agriculture is so good down here because we've got that beautiful UV to get things growing. What would be one of your favourite parts of living down in Tassie? Oh, geez, that's a big question. I guess we're talking about ag, right? You know, and I do love agriculture and it's, it's a great place. I've never been here before, before I moved here. And, um, you know, there's just lots of investment. You know, it's, it's a big industry in Tassie and, it's, and I guess I feel like it's treated that way. Like li- living in town now, I've been in the country most of my life and being a townie now, people look at you with respect that you're, you're in agriculture and you're farming. And I think you know, that's how Tassie sort of sees it. So I really like that aspect of it. You know, it is the, the backbone of the state, which props 
perhaps back in the day was, I guess, logging in those kind of industries. So it's really great. I love that you said that you moved down without having ever been there. So I think we'll probably get to that. But I think your background and when we initially talked, you've made some big decisions and moved to places without having ever been them. I want to ask you about your schooling and some of the decisions you made there. But just firstly, what were you like as a student and was school your thing? Uh, School definitely wasn't my thing. There's no doubt about that. And and maybe there's a lot of guys in agriculture that will say the same things. But um, and and I'm not I'm definitely not old by any means. But back when I was going to school, um, you know, in the in the mid nineties, I guess things like dyslexia and ADHD weren't really a thing. You know, and and there's no doubt that later in life I've realised that you know dyslexia is a big part of my life, and that's actually why school wasn't for me. You know, if I couldn't touch it and feel it and understand it in that way there was no way I was going to be able to read a book and understand it so you know at school I was the kid that got in woodwork would get an A you know for my woodwork production you know but but the I would get a a fail on the planning process (laughs) you know on the written side of it so um, I've always been that sort of hands-on you know see and touch and do and, and and learn off other people rather than learn it out of a book I guess so that meant at school I was I wasn't a bad kid. I didn't get into lots of trouble, but, you know, I wasn't doing a lot of schoolwork, that's for sure. And it came with a bit of an ultimatum at one stage, didn't it, from, from your parents? Yeah, it certainly did. Um, <laughs> it certainly did about, about that age. And I guess it's still the same. I don't even know. But, you know, around that year 10 or, or 16, 17 mark, you know, what are you going to do with your life? Are you going to continue at school or are you going to get an apprenticeship? Or, you know, they were, I guess, pretty traditional, you know, Australian family where you got to, earn your keep, I guess, you know, we're not going to support you forever. And, and if you're not going to university, what are you going to do? Um, and luckily for me, my uh, background or well, my father's background is, is um, Danish. So he's Danish, moved out to Australia, um, I guess, in the early 80s uh, with my mum, who's Australian. And um, he had a few connections back in Denmark. So they, uh, they lined me up one day and said, um, either you start putting in at school or, or how about an opportunity to go and work for was room and board actually in Denmark on a farm. I took that opportunity. I couldn't wait to leave school. <laughs> Thought it was the best thing ever. Were you daunted at all in terms of heading so far away from home as just a 16 or 17 year old? It's funny when I look back now, you know, I, I wasn't at all. Like I just couldn't wait. And I mean, I guess having the connection there, a lot of people are like, oh, you went over there to family or whatever. I actually didn't. You know, I literally went to a, a, onto a family farm, but not part of our family, but, you know, a farming family who, you know, I'd per- perhaps met when I was over there when I was 12 or something like that, but really didn't know these people. But, you know, I guess um, I guess already travelling overseas a little bit and probably with my dad, you know, moving to Australia, you know, I guess it wasn't uncommon. Yeah, it's not something that was like, oh, you'd never go overseas. It was, it was more like, oh, this sounds awesome. You know, and I'm not going to lie, you know, getting out of school, school wasn't where I wanted to be, you know, so anything that I thought was going to get me out of that was, with my parents' blessing, was going to be great. Was agriculture front of mind? You mentioned you enjoyed your woodwork side of things. Was agriculture a career or was this more something like, this is just going to be an experience, let's go and give it a crack? No, definitely it wasn't an idea of a career. I wasn't from a farming family. Um, although, you know, when I say that, I think my, my father actually studied agriculture in Denmark, you know, back in the, whatever years, those would have been 70s, I suppose. Um, 
you know, and, and probably wanted to be a farmer, but found that quite hard. And, and moving out to Australia with my mother, you know, there was sort of nearly no hope. So he got into, I think, heavy industry, earth moving, um, and then ended up working at Australian Paper, actually, in Latrobe Valley, where, where I grew up. And so ag wasn't part of our family, but we sort of lived out of town on five acres. I rode motorbikes. You know, we had a wood fire, but, you know, we weren't involved in farming at all. So, um, yeah, it was definitely, I didn't go, I don't think I left for the farming, right? I think I left because there was an opportunity, you know, not to stick at school and probably get it, get away from my parents. <laughs> yeah, no, mate, fascinating as a, as a 16 year old. So that experience over there, what was it like? Did you, did you want to stay there long term? Well, I mean, I guess as a 16 year old, you're really getting to that point in life where things are starting to get pretty fun, right? You know, there's plenty of parties going on and, and, and you're mucking about and you're growing up and, and you're growing up with a group of friends. So, when I look back now, it was a real key part of my life going over there. And, and to be honest, I missed home, right? You know, I missed my friends and hanging out and not the school part, but, you know, the after school part. But working, you know, working and my, and, and my ability just went together, right? You know, I picked everything up super quick. You know, I only had to be shown once. Um, it was something I could just put my mind to. I, I didn't want to have the weekends off. You know, I just thoroughly got into it and couldn't get enough, actually. Um, but you know, I, I actually didn't stay there forever. Yeah. You know, you know, I stayed there for my 12 month term and, and I was actually really keen to get home maybe for the wrong reasons. I was keen to get home to hang out with my friends and be a kid, you know, without jumping forward by the time I got home, you know, that no, nobody had changed. Everybody's the same because they'd had the same experiences where obviously I'd been, you know, in another country surviving, getting around Denmark without speaking Danish, um, and actually working, you know, with, men if that makes sense you know with adults rather than hanging around with kids so i'd changed quite a bit by the time i got back to australia and, and look i look back sometimes thinking that perhaps what would life have been if i had stayed there but yeah i'm also not that unhappy with how it turned out here either I guess. well it's a yeah pretty pretty big milestone isn't it when you your mates are all sitting in in classrooms for 30 or so hours a week and and you're probably working double that amount of time often yeah I'll say in isolation, but isolation is not the right word, but by yourself in terms of you've got responsibility coming back, I, I think well, it's it very normal to come back and see your mates. But as you said, um, when you're spending that amount of time kind of in the system, uh, things probably don't change that much. No, they certainly don't. And, and, and you, I mean, the isolated bit something that we can talk about because, you know, I've also been in this farming game long enough to be in the time when, you know, you didn't have a mobile phone with, internet on it right you know and it was isolating in Denmark as a 16 year old I sat on a tractor and there's no phone you know and I don't even think they had UHFs in their tractors because everything was so small you know like you just had the radio on and and that was and someone would pick you up right at a certain time and that's it yeah away you go for the day um, but you know I, I just I got the passion of the of the seasonal work right you know in Denmark you so lots of product before winter, you know, and you think, oh, in winter you do nothing. Well, in winter we had the people I worked for had contracts to plow snow for glass factories and they had a piggery and, and, you know, there was just this whole other world that happened during the winter, which to me was completely foreign but super exciting, right? You know, driving tractors in the snow and, and stuff like that was, you know, yeah, you didn't even have to pay me to do it. <laughs> and so coming coming back home, you, you went back to your local town. Was it? Was farming 
on the cards? Is it what you wanted to do? Or did you have to move away to kind of pursue this passion that you'd found? Well, I came home and, and I suppose the ultimatum when I came home from my parents again a little bit was like, well, you know, are you going back to school or are you getting a job or, or what are we doing now? And um, and I wasn't quite 18 yet. So I had had about four or five months to, you know, kill in other words, but just figuring out what I was going to do. And I suppose my dad said, well, do you like this farming caper? And I said, oh, geez, I bloody love driving big tractors and stuff like that. You know, it wasn't that bad. And, and he said, well, actually, you know, how about we try and get your job in, in ag, you know, and there's big tractors in the Wimmera Mallee. So what about that? And I, oh yeah, you know, I was still, you know, 17, right. You know, didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I definitely enjoyed what I did in, in Denmark. So credit to him. He put us in the car. I think we, and we went up to the speed field days and, you know, had a little card of what my name was and, and what I'd done, which wasn't very much. And we handed it out to a few people and, Look, I think by the next Wednesday, like literally within seven days or five or six days, um, we had a phone call from a farmer and, yeah, come up for an interview pretty much. And so you headed up there, got the job. Well, so I, so we headed up to, to Nil where I got my first, you know, ag job and, you know, on a, what to me was a bloody big farm and it was dry and I think it was in September sometime it must have been. And, yeah, hot and dry and droughty and, you know, and those guys were – pretty keen I think to give anybody that was interested to go and I remember remember at the time that the guy saying to me well you know if you're willing to drive I think it was about six hours from Latrobe Valley then through the city you know if you're willing to drive six hours for an interview you know we'll probably give you a bit of a go so lucky for me they gave me a go and, and the rest is history that's what they say I want to know on uh, at what stage do you reckon the realization came because you, you started so so young in terms of what you're doing but at what stage did you kind of hit that point of like, this is me, this is what I want to do. When did that come to you? Um, I don't, it probably didn't come to a lot later in life actually, because I'm probably a little bit, you know, I'm not an overthinker, you know, I just get in and get stuff done. And, and I think without even choosing it as a career, it just became who I was, you know, and, and anybody that, that is either a farmer or has spent any time in, in broad acre cropping, it's your life, right? You know, it's not a it's not a job. It's not something you can come and go and, and you rock up with a heap of qualifications. You know, when you're a young person, if you're willing to to sit on a tractor, you know, and, and probably even straight away make decisions, you know, and back yourself in, you know, it, you'll have a job and it's a lifestyle sort of thing because it's based around the weather and timings and, and those kind of things. So um, I don't think the realisation that I was actually any good at it or it was my career wasn't until a lot later you know once you start either up you know looking for management jobs and those kind of things i guess up until then you know it was just this is what i did um to make a dollar so where did the pathway lead you did you always stick around the wimmera or were you looking kind of elsewhere no look i stuck around the wimmera um i, I did a certificate three or four in agriculture i'm not even sure something i had to do pretty much to have a job um there <laughs> and and look once that was that was up I guess there was a, an idea that maybe we should, um, you know, move on or look somewhere else or go farming somewhere else, really. So I, um, I actually ended up down in Mount Gambia um, on a farm down there that we'd done some contract harvesting for in the past with the people I had worked for. And, and those guys down there knew who I was and, and they wanted to run their own cropping program and, and without using contractors. And so I sort of, 
I was looking, but I still was in a pretty safe place, right? I, I went to a farm that I knew, I knew the owners, um, but you know, unbeknown, unbeknownst to me, they've got animals, right? You know, I've come from these cropping farms where you'd rip down fences, you don't put them up. Uh, <laughs> it was a bit of a steep learn. I think one of my first jobs was, you know, landmarking, and I'm thinking, Jesus, what have I got myself into? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, up until that stage, I had no interest in that kind of stuff, you know. But I, I went down onto an irrigated you know, mixed cropping farm sort of thing and, and there was sheep and cattle work to do and there wasn't tractor work to do and irrigators to service and and um and that that's probably maybe that's when it really opened my eyes up to what ag is actually without coming through from the family. Up until then I just thought it was big paddocks and driving headers and putting crops in. Um it, that was my first experience of that true, you know, mixed farming and, and irrigation and the amount of product you can get off land if you really run it properly. And so did you enjoy that shift? Look, I think I probably did because it was the first time, you know, I, I'd left my first job, right? You know, so I became, I, I was able to use the skills that I'd learnt off the people I'd been working for, you know, and it was skills that those guys didn't have. So I really felt some worth there. You know, it was the first time it's like, well, I know how to do this. And they were asking me to, to be the expert, um, which I really enjoyed, you know, and they, those guys were right into planting maize and stuff like that for silage and you know they hadn't done it before and I hadn't done it before either but I'd done enough farming to understand what we had to do to get it done and so I felt real worth in in myself at that place and, and I guess working in a bit more of a a, a a different team it was ran like a station Mount Tank station you know it was, was quite big and it had stockmen and guys at big fences and tractor drivers like myself and and yeah definitely a different work environment. That, um, that self-worth piece is interesting, hey, because like it's, it really starts to get you nearly like buying into the business because you feel valued, you feel part of it. Does it change your uh, approach to working like in that business if you look at what it was like, say, in the Wimmera to actually then being, having responsibility and responsibilities, I guess, as part of that? Um, I would, I probably had it before that. And I was, I was lucky, you know, the, the first guys that I worked for, um, were quite large farmers for, for back then. I think they had maybe 4,000 hectares or something like that, you know, and in, in, that was 90, 98, 99 when I started up there and, and straight away, you know, it wasn't like, oh, here's a young kid that we've got to look after. It was like, here's another worker, you know, away you go sort of thing. And, and, and very quickly during that four year period that I was there, um, by the end of it, you know, we were doing contract harvesting and I'm running that, right? You know, and, and we're running windrows all around the countryside. And, you know, there was no, um, you know, you're just the apprentice. You've always got to be looked over. It's like you're an employee and we're paying you, you know, and we're going to put that responsibility on you to make sure it's done properly. Um, and I probably, that's where I got my work ethic from. You know, I know my family's got a good work ethic, but that, you can't understate that first time that you those first couple of years you spend on a farm and where that is and how that's run to how that influences the rest of your working career actually because those guys up there were in the middle of the droughts you know there was 10 years of drought you know from whatever 99 through to 2009 um you know and those guys decided that they would you know find off farm income through contracting and traveling around all the countryside and doing everything themselves and they just had such a can-do attitude that you can't help but get sucked into and what I found is that when I went to these, when I started going to other farms and getting other jobs, that wasn't always the case. Yeah. And I was the one, you know, that had, well, we can do this ourselves and, and we can get that to happen. And that self-worth, you know, as I said, when I went to 
man, Gambia, there was nothing we can't do was my attitude, but I've learned that from the people I've been working with. Do you find that still popping up today? Oh, 100%. Yeah, it's, it, you've, you've, I suppose you've either got it, but it does. I, once, I think once you've maybe worked, whether it's hard enough, it's not the right word because everyone's got their own idea of what that is, but, you know, I jokingly say and what I do now and I'll, and I'll tell my boss every day of the week that it's the easiest job I've got ever had, yeah, because it is, right, you know. The hours you do as a young person on Broadacre Farms, you know, people don't even believe it. They, they don't understand. They, they really don't believe it. If you tell someone in the town, they'll be just like, oh, yeah, we're well, stretching the truth. And do I, do I think it's right all the time? Probably not. It's probably even unsafe sometimes, but it's the way it is. But, but it's helped me for the rest of my life, right? Because once you've done those hard yards, everything else seems pretty easy. Well, I, I want to know, so you you moved around it a little bit in terms of regions and, and roles on the mainland. But this move to Tassie, was, was that the next step? Well, why were you looking to move away from farming um, in Victoria, South Australia? Um, there, was, there was a few things, but I guess one of the main reasons was, was a change. You know, we'd been through all those droughts through the Wimmera, which, you know, after Mount Gambia, I only, only was there for a couple of years and I went back actually straight into to Mill and sort of worked this not the same company, but the same guys. Um, and, yeah, I think it was end of 08 or 09 when, when Brisbane had all those floods, you know, the drought broke, you know, and, and Lake Highmarsh up there and the Wimmera filled up and, and everything was too wet and we couldn't get our crops off over harvest. But there was, such, there was such great optimism about what was to come because we had subsoil moisture. You know, we hadn't seen that in 10 years. Um, but inevitably what happened between that that time 09 and 2012-13 when I left was it really became this big factory and it rained and I believe that we were very good at cropping because of all those droughts we've gotten really good at what we did and so once we just added rain to those to, to that system it became a bit of a factory and as a person that didn't have any skin in the game I didn't have any ownership except for getting a wage all of a sudden you're just like actually all this production means a bloody lot of work and it's the same every year and, and those big farms and they're all in it and uh, are they always understaffed well you know there's a fair part of the year where you could probably use an extra guy yeah and so that means that when it rains a lot you got to spray a lot yeah that's a lot of weekend work and every time it's not windy and and um you know and we transition to not you know pre-drilling nitrogen through all those drought years so then you go sowing and the minute it looks like it's going to rain you're, you're spreading your rear and you're you know, if you're on a big enough farm, you're already spraying your, your first round of broadleafs in your cereals before you've even finished cropping. And so that, you know, you're, you're cutting hay now, right? You're cutting hay at the end of, uh, yeah, end of September and you're harvesting right through to January. And so this big factory just sort of ate me up a bit, you know, because there was no downtime. In, in the droughts, you'd finish harvest super early because there wasn't any grain and, you'd, and it wouldn't rain over summer. So you didn't have to do any spraying. And so you'd just sit around till you know, Easter and think, oh, we better start scratching some vetch into the dust, I suppose. Um, but, but once it started raining up there, that's sort of what, yeah, it was nearly, you know, too easy sounds like the wrong word. But, you know, it's a bit like that, right? We knew what we had to do and we did it. So I, I was looking for something else and a bit of a sea change. I just started looking for jobs and, and I applied for a job in Tassie. I'd never even been down here, but, you know, it was a 750 or 1,000 hectare you know, irrigated grass seed production farm. I'd spent my whole life trying to get rid of Wimmera ryegrass, right? And now I'm moving <laughs> to try and grow it. So <laughs> couldn't be any more different. 
Really? <laughs> and how did it go for you? Going from big broad acre blocks to 750 hectares of irrigated. Look, what was the assumption leading in? Uh, my assumption was this is going to be, you know, mine, my French, a piece of kiss. And, you know, I'm going to turn, I'm, I'm a Wimramalli guy. I'm not going to own gumboots. Um, so <laughs> it's going to be just wet as piss all the time. I, you know, I didn't, I had no idea. Let's face it. <laughs> I had absolutely no idea. But, you know, through my experiences, whether that be Denmark or, or down in Mount Gambia with a bit of irrigation and, and those droughts, and, you know, I've, I've backed myself in, right? You know, you you get to a certain time when you've done done this, uh, you've been a farmer and you're just like, I can grow anything actually. Yeah, it doesn't matter whether it's the vegetables or grass seed or flowers. Yeah, I understand how to do that stuff. So I just backed myself in and, and sold myself well enough that they gave me a job for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> and so you packed up, jumped on the boat, headed over, and you found yourself on this mixed farm growing grass seed. Oh yeah, and, and you know, you know, <laughs> having to grass seeds a different beast, you know, and you're going to do a whole podcast and trying to grow bloody grass seed, but you know, it, it was a different beast. And having livestock on the farm, you know, and making sure we had enough at certain times of year, and and also the farm's quite a wet farm; it's along a river, so it does get flooded. And 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 I was only on this farm for two years, and then but I had two streams the first year I was there. It was a drought year. You know, I'd come down to Tassie thinking it was going to be wet, and I think we might have had 350 mils for the growing season. Now, we had irrigators, right? So I'm like, this is pretty easy. But, you know, running 10 or 12 irrigators and four or five hard hoses has got its challenges as well. So <laughs> it was a learning experience, to say the least. And then the second year, um, I think we had like a one-in-100-year flood, so just polar opposites. What was harder in terms of going from one extreme? Was it was it easier to manage with with less water or with more? Less, yeah, definitely less. And I guess I'd probably say you know if I'd had ten years experience doing it, maybe it would have been a different story. But when you're trying to find your feet, you just need consistency. <laughs> so either be wet all the time or be dry all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's the change that really throws you because you sort of think you've got something sorted and, and then it's not. I guess. There's something pretty special about being able to control the moisture. That that's like a god act. That is. Yeah, <laughs> it's literally turning yeah. the tap on and off. Yeah, and it, I mean it should be really easy, right? But it, but not everybody gets it right, which I've, I've since, since learned. You know, it's it's um, something that you you can get good at and learn a lot about actually watering and cropping taking and evaporation and all that kind of stuff. And in terms of like the main crops that have the have the crops grown changed much in the time that you've been over there in Tassie? Look, I think they're pretty, they move with the times. When I say the times, they move with the money. Um, you know, poppies were obviously a massive thing for Tassie and I probably came in at the end of that. They're, they're still grown here, but it's not, it's not as big as it once was. You know, red meat has been valued very highly in the last couple of years. You know, it's been record prices. Um, and so so a lot of the farms that, I, that I'm involved with, with what I do now are they are originally grazing, are graziers. That's what they've done. That's what their fathers did. And, and along came irrigation, which sort of changed the, the game a little bit. Yeah, it's such a diverse place down here. That, that's why it's so exciting to be in agriculture in Tassie because, you know, even as we speak, the, the companies that are doing the fresh produce, you know, they're pushing further into those areas where there's irrigation. So they'd be able to grow, you know, fresh peas down through the Midlands, whereas, you know, four or five years ago, that just didn't happen. You know, so they're getting you know more varied in different crops. They have to be under irrigation, but um, the opportunities there are, are huge to really complement their red meat, I guess. 
when we can digress even further because I did see not too far out of Hobart some asparagus getting grown and then I heard something the other day that Taz, a fella in Tassie's growing the first white asparagus in Australia, I believe, which he saw over in Europe and has, uh, is looking to replicate it down there. Yeah, I actually read the same article and um, I find that amazing. So my, my partner's German and I've just been back here this year and she laughs at it because she said, you know, in Germany, they only eat white asparagus. You know, the green one they, they use to like fertilise the ground or something. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, she said we're completely backwards and she finds it amazing. I, I know nothing about growing asparagus, but maybe it's a bit tricky to grow the white one. But yeah, she said that she'd never seen green asparagus before she came here. So, um, but, but I think it's that environment, it's the soft fruit down here that's just taken off because it em- emulates, you know, the European conditions and, and how it grows. And I don't think there's anything you can't grow down here really, except for probably really good high quality milling wheat because it just doesn't sort of get hot enough. Nowadays, you you're working, I'll say off farm, still on farm, but you're, you've moved away from the actual farming side. How did that come about? I mean, I guess opportunities, you know, and, um, you know, I was in Tassie and we were using a, a company to, you know, help us with our agronomy and advising and our inputs. And, you know, they just approached me one day and said, have you ever thought of coming across to this side? Now, for someone like me who I would say is – in the traditional sense, very uneducated, going into a world that I knew nothing about. It was super daunting and I was really taken back by it. I'm like, well, I'm just a bloody farmer, mate. You know, what would I do? You know, but they, they were really good at saying, well, actually, we think we need you kind of, pe- kind of people like yourself in the, in, in, on this side of the fence, you know, and just talk to farmers about farming and, and help them be better at what they do through your experiences. Um, so, um, yeah, they sort of, you know, they made it attractive enough for me to, to have a go. And I guess by that stage of my life, what have I got to lose, right? You know, there is farming jobs wherever you want to go, you know. So if after a few months or a few years, I didn't like it. You know, I knew it was very safe. It was very safe to take a chance without a doubt. And what do you reckon the, the best learning uh, has been from it or a key learning? I reckon uh, as a farmer, I always thought I didn't know very much and the guy next door must be doing it better. You know, I really was always striving to be better and I always thought, God, if I could only do this better and oh, everyone must be doing it better than me and, and that kind of stuff. And so with what I do, when I changed and, and being able to, and I was always locked on a farm, right? So you're a bit insular and yeah, you might go to a few grower groups, but realistically you're just stuck on your own farm. And with what I do now, being able to go around the whole state and anywhere in Australia to look at farming, you know, where you know, farmers are, you know, they're so adaptive to, to what they do and how they do it and, and um, you know, and, and are hard workers and, and we've got so many um, skills that can transition into any business, actually, I would say, because as a farmer, you know, you're the WHS guy, you're the, you're the um, financial manager, um, you know, you're managing staff, it's endless what you what you do and the skills you pick up um, and, and you should you know we need to take a step back and realize you know wow we actually are we're running you know businesses and, and most guys are doing it really well a favorite part sitting on on this side of the fence of being able to go and look at different farmers 
Uh, I mean, I know, I know my partner, Nicola, would say the favourite part is that I have every weekend off and, you know, and I, I struggled to do more than my 40 hours a week. is <laughs> is pretty nice. In mind you, it took a long time to get used to, but um, it is just being able to talk to heaps of different guys and, and, and whether whether you feel some days you feel like maybe you're not helping anybody or doing anything but just having a conversation over the fence with a farmer about a sewing job or a new product or what we think the world market's doing you know you can never underestimate the the sharing of information and how that helps the group of people you're with um you know and i've always always been a big believer that i'm because i didn't come from a farmer and i've learned along the way you know, I always valued everybody's input into my career. You know, if I look back, I didn't go to university, but I went to a pretty good university actually, where I got heaps of different ideas about how you're going to go about life along with farming and stuff like that. So yeah, you're only as good as that, that group of people that you surround yourself with. And I really believe that. And so I, I try these days to hopefully be, you know, a really good attribute to that group of people that are supporting a farmer um, through information and, and you know, someone to talk to. And so being in the farm services game, can you tell us a little bit about what your actual role is? And if it's easier, let us know what um, any random week kind of looks like in, in what you're up to. Yeah, I always find this really hard because everybody <laughs> wants to put people in a box, right? You know, what's yeah. your title? What do you do? You know, you know, and I always joke that, you know, I, you know, I guess I'm, I've got that old farmer saying where I'm, you know, like I'm just a shit kicker. I don't do too much. You know, I just get through the day. But I um, I try to be a share of information, you know, and somebody that, that people can talk to about to help them make decisions, you know, and that can be very broad. And I, and I see that a little bit once now that I'm in this industry is that there's plenty of advisors, right, who want to charge for, for, for their intellectual property or whatever it is. And, and I just really don't, buy into that of course some financial people probably have to do that kind of stuff but you know at the ground level i want to make sure that i'm informed as i can be so when i talk to a farmer or a grower um i can answer their questions or at least give my opinion and and that can be on you know obviously in the last couple of years it's been supply and pricing around fertilizer and chemical inputs and, and we have the ability and we've got people in our business that, that just feed that information to us. And there's no point me holding on to that thinking, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to be the smart guy. And if these guys want to know that, they need to pay per hour for me to come out to their farm. You know, I'm completely opposite. You know, I'm a share of information and anything I know, you know, I want to share that with the people that, that would like to be involved with me and be one of those support people. Um, and I think the benefit I can add is because of my farming background. And I, that's how I come at it. I come at it if it's my farm. Um, if it's my farm, these are the kind of things that I would be looking out for and doing um, and maybe giving the farmer a bit of confidence, you know, in the back end that, that what they're thinking sitting in the tractor all day or when they're moving sheep or whatever, you know, it's not just some silly thought. It's a bloody good idea. You know, let's crack on with it. So, of course, for me to be employed... Um, in that services industry, you know, there's an expectation that people buy a product from us, right? But, you know, everyone wants to call me a salesman, but I, I, I vow and declare that I haven't sold a thing in my life that, you know, people buy stuff from us because of the value we add. Um, you know, it's no different to working for somebody. Why, you know, why do they employ you? It's because you add value to their business. Um, mm. is always my plan. 
it's pretty good uh, pretty good exchange really isn't it it's also it's also it's also not knowing everything right you know and this is i'm only, I'm only as good as the people that i'm surrounded by so you know i'm the last person to say i know anything about anything but i'll know someone who does yeah and that's that connecting part is that you know i know enough about farming to know what i don't know yeah and that's a bloody lot but let's go and find those experts let's go and find those agros all those animal production people or you know the the grain trader who might know what the world market's doing or whatever you know trying to link those people up is really what i try to do and i think that like those connectors are definitely undervalued i think in terms of like there's so much power in having that network of people to be able to lean on and go yeah it's it's nearly like the the speciality or the superpower in being a generalist is you go well this is the little area that i know but then cool you got a question on this or that and just start to surround yourself with those people it becomes incredibly powerful as that group grows and we all want to learn together right like i haven't finished learning as you know i'm super interested in agriculture you know i want to learn it and you know one of the great things now is that i'm exposed to you know, strawberry farms and vineyards and all these things that I just think are awesome because I've never known anything about it. Um, and suddenly they become part of my team too, right? You know, they become part of my information that I can take to, to a grower somewhere. Um, and I also think I'm a really big believer in, you know, I, I offer this information with no expectation of anything in return. You do what you need to do, you know, and if you think I add value, you know, then, then I think that comes around in the end, you know, to helping the business that I work for. I'd love to know what, what you see is, and this is from your own opinion, what, what do you see as the opportunities for Tassie grain growers and maybe some of the things that are pricking your ears up or getting you a little bit excited about the industry down there? I reckon uh, they've always been yelling out for a, or screaming out for, a, you know, a, a rotation, I suppose, the marketing of grain down here and, and having grain marketers in the area, which is, which, which we now do, you know, and the opportunity for them to give us forward pricing on things like faba beans, you know, faba beans, we know coming from the Wimmera Mallee, you know, it's a staple diet of our rotation. You know, it's how we get some end back in the ground. It's our way of looking after the, the dirt a bit. Um, whereas down here, you know, they probably, the, the dry land cropping has probably struggled a bit because they've really just had markets for feed, wheat and barley um, going into to dairy farms. So I think the opportunity to, you know, because the irrigated part, you know, there's, there's probably plenty of things that can be grown under a pivot, to be honest, but there's a fair bit of dry land area that can be utilised for cropping um, and, and just having a, a favour bean in there will make a huge difference, difference to, to what we can achieve you know, really with that weed pressure and, and you know, rye grass and the, all the typical broadacre cropping issues that we tend to have. Um, you know, and, and and I guess, as I said, with that grain trader in the state, that's a, that's a little window into the world market. You know, these guys are telling us what they're going to pay us for our product next year and the year after. And so it really helps you in the decision-making process on your farm instead of just guessing, oh, well, I hope, you know, that I'm going to get 200 bucks for this week, week, you know, and you've sown it six months in advance. You know, there's no, you don't have to hope anything. You can actually really structure how your business is going to look and where your cash flow is at. Yeah, it's a uh, huge opportunity, isn't it? Actually making, I'll say, oh, I feel silly saying, but data decisions, but actually decisions based off what is actually going to 
generate you yeah. re- revenue. So based off an actual, you know, there's not, it's always pretty tricky to base decisions off an actual, but you know, and of course everybody says, Oh, well, I couldn't get fostered and I could get this, but you know, Tassie grain growing, especially now that we have these dual purpose crops, you know, like it's just easy is the wrong word and I'll get shot down for saying anything's easy, but you know, to be able to sow, you know, a, a canola or a wheat crop in November or December and graze it with sheep. And then at some point decide, you know, in, in May, June, look, I might lock this up and I'll get 400 bucks a ton for my wheat. You know, that sounds pretty good to me. I spent 10 years in the Wimmera, you know, harvesting our wheat paddocks to get our seed back. Yeah. You know, it's not all doom and gloom down here, that's for sure. It's a slight change. And, and I think where you're coming at it from, you've got incredible perspectives of just the different challenges, um, but also to where that optimism and kind of hope can come from as well. Yeah. And, and I also think, you know, what those droughts actually taught me personally was you need to bring your A game every year. You need to bring best practice. And, and unfortunately, in our industry, for some reason, best practice sometimes comes across as you need to use the most expensive chemical, you know, or you need to do the most sprays or whatever. But for me, best practice is just doing things on time and being planned and organized, you know, so you give that crop every opportunity succeed um whereas you know in a, in a climate like it is down here yeah if i sow that crop two or three weeks later is it actually going to matter in the end i don't like that <laughs> you know we've got a plan let's make it happen you know and, and really make sure that every drop of rain or, or every opportunity is going to make it so you know i'm a big believer of best practice um if you're going to do it do it properly without a doubt now yeah, this is the fun part. I'm going to say, don't overthink it. We've got uh, five questions we're asking everyone that's coming on as part of this GRDC series. Uh, so, are you ready? Go for it. Righto. What's your favourite grain-based dish? <clears throat> Bean soup. Bean soup. Okay. Who would be three people you'd invite around for a bit of bean soup? Oh, um. I would say uh, my old boss from the Wimmera. I think he's a hell of a guy. I'd actually, uh, dead or alive, I'd actually invite um, my grandfather from Denmark. I know that's got nothing to do with agriculture, but I never really got to know that guy and, uh, and that someone. Oh, geez, I'm not really this kind of person, actually. I reckon uh, I'd invite, I've got nothing, just two. <laughs> Maybe my wife. <laughs> there you go. That's the three of you. Yeah, just the three of us. This one should be slightly easier for you. First job that you ever had? The first job I ever had was mm. was the was the Danish job, right? I had a great childhood. You know, maybe I had a job for my dad stacking a wood box, but the first real job was shipped off to Denmark and, you know, here's a set of overalls and there you go. What's something that you've got on your bucket list? I'd actually, believe it or not, even though I'm in this crazy job, I'd at some point, I'd love to get back into high-level management of, of, you know, the big cropping farms, get back into to that. After seeing what I've seen, you know, and, and I, without sounding like an old dude that knows heaps of stuff, you know, with the experiences, you know, getting back into that um, real food production, you know, and, and real, um, you know, best practice, broad acre, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm talking the 50,000 hectare cropping guys. I'd love to get back in there somehow at some point. Uh, if Look, and maybe that's when my kids have grown up and left home perhaps because I can imagine it'll be a lot of work. But, you know, I love large-scale agriculture and I love 
the fact that in that large scale ag agriculture, you've got to treat every square meter of your dirt as the next. Yeah, you've got to treat it like it's a hobby farm to get the most out of it. Um, so my bucket list would be to get back into that at some point. Well, we'll watch this space with you. Okay, one last question and you can answer it with a question. And I'm going to say don't overthink it, but what's a question you'd like us to ask a future guest on this series? If, I, if I'm a bit selfish, I would ask um, from the services industry, where do farmers see our value? Because uh, uh, we, we have all types of people, right? You know, and, and where do they see the value coming from? Because when we go to a bank, we know we're trying to get money from them. Right. When we go to, you know, the dentist, they're going to fix our teeth. When we, when we go to ag services, you know, are we just there to, to pick up the drum of chemical or the, or the, you know, the vaccine for the sheep or are we actually there because, you know, we, we want these guys to add value to our business? That's a very good question. And I'll make sure we loop you back with, uh, with the answer in the episode that it's part of. Right. Beautiful. Well, Yannick, thank you so much for taking a little bit of time out of your day and coming on for a chat. It's been, Fascinating, mate. You got a heck of a story. It's awesome. Right. No, look, I appreciate your time. And uh, yeah, I guess we all probably shouldn't undervalue where we've been and what we've done. Thanks for joining us for the GRDC In Conversation podcast. This series is a GRDC investment that's sharing the stories of the people who are living and breathing the Aussie grains industry. Make sure you check out some of our other conversations and hit follow on your favourite podcast app to never miss an episode.